This morning we begin the first Sunday of Advent. And we also conclude our series on the book of Amos. And that is deliberate. And you'll see why in a moment. I just want to start by reading the last few verses of the book of Amos. It's from chapter 9, verses 11 on. And Amos writes this. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen, and I will repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. And I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruits. I will plant them on the land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. And Father God, this morning as we Open your word as we read this last part of this book of Amos we've been walking through for the past two months as we begin our preparations for Christmas. I pray, God, that you would speak to us through your word this morning. May we come and just sit under it and hear your voice. May we hear you speak to us. May we learn. May we understand. And may we be encouraged and challenged in our walk with you. And we pray all that in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. This year, as we begin Advent, our theme for the season is preparing for Christmas. And I see it all around us. The stores are full of Christmas now that Black Friday is safely behind us. Christmas season as we know it has begun. I wonder sometimes if it just starts earlier and earlier. I, it feels to me like it does. You know, we don't have American Thanksgiving to kind of be that last thing before Christmas. But I remember the year that Don's brother got married, which was 25 years ago now. And uh, that Remembrance Day, we took our kids to the mall to see Santa. So it's not that bad this year, at least. We managed to get to here. And I imagine uh, if you're like many people, you've already started to prepare your house for Christmas. You've probably got the tree up. Maybe the house decorations are up. Some of you uh, hyper-efficient people have your gifts all bought. The only question is what will Christmas Day look like or Christmas Eve, if that's when you celebrate it? Who will we get to spend it with? Where will it be? Well, we'll find out, I guess, as we get a little closer to the season. But at this point, uh, yeah, it could be a rotisserie chicken from Safeway for the two of us. But this Sunday, we start Advent. And Advent is those four Sundays that lead up to Christmas. It's that time of deliberately slowing down. It's that time of allowing God to speak to us. It's that time of preparing for the spiritual side of Christmas because Everything else conspires to help us prepare for the other side. And Advent is just a Latin word. It comes from ad, meaning to, and vent, venita, meaning 
to come, and it's God coming to us in Jesus Christ. And in a way, it's a bifocal. It's a both and. It's a two things at once. It's both looking back at Christmas past when Jesus came, but it's also looking forward to the fact that he's coming again, that there will be a day when he comes. And last week, we looked at this whole day of the Lord that Amos talked about. And we looked at, well, what is he talking about? And we discovered he uses that phrase in that day four different times. And the first three times, it's referring to judgment. It's referring to God coming and judging, and it's going to be in the uh, Assyrians coming and destroying the country and the people going into exile. But that's going to be a foretaste that God is coming at the end of time, and there will be an end judgment as well. But this in that day, the one we read today, that's a little different. It's talking about a more positive day. It's talking about the day of the Lord when Jesus comes back. And it was foreshadowed by his first coming, but his second coming will be when everything is made right. And on this first Sunday of Advent, it just seemed fitting as we finish up this book of Amos, where he ends the book is where Advent starts. And so that's why we're here. So, the interesting thing about God is that he spent way more time than we do preparing for Christmas. In fact, the first promise that he makes that he's going to send Jesus into the world, we find back in Genesis chapter 3. So the third chapter of the first book of the Bible, God is already preparing for Christmas. Adam and Eve sin, if you remember that story. And then God pronounces a judgment over them. Over the woman, there's going to be pain and childbirth. Over the man, there's going to be weeds and thorns and struggles in work. And then over the serpent, Satan, the one who tempted them. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And on your belly you will go and dust you will eat all your days. And now this thing. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And it's that prediction of Jesus coming and his death on the cross. Well, that's pretty cryptic. You got to admit that. And Amos in our passage this morning got a little clearer. Uh, next week, we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Uh, unto us a son is born, unto us a child is given. Uh, you heard that already in the uh, Advent wreath, and you're going to hear it actually every Sunday this month as we look at a different part of that verse. But Isaiah gives us a little more clarity. The next week we're going to look at when, when God comes in an angel and talks to Mary and tells her she's going to have this child. And Mary responds with this song we call the Magnificat, uh, which is just Latin for blessed, when she says how blessed she is by all this. And then on that last Sunday of Advent, we're going to look at the birth of Jesus, when all God's preparations come together. But today, the, the first of those, the perhaps not the most cryptic, because we've already said that's in Genesis, but... What we can learn from Amos, what can we learn from a guy who 750 years before Jesus was born gives this prophecy and prediction? And what can we learn about the two comings of Jesus? And that's our task for this morning. So when Jesus is prophesied in the coming, 
and he's prophesied in the Old Testament, there's this challenge of trying to figure out when are they talking about Jesus coming as a baby in Bethlehem, and when are they talking about Jesus coming at the end of time and coming as the reigning king? And from the Old Testament, it's hard to tell the difference which one they're talking about. And even in Amos this morning, is he talking about Jesus coming at, as a baby in Bethlehem, past tense for us, future tense for him? Or is he talking about the end time, future tense for both of us? And I don't know, maybe you've looked at the mountains, and uh, they're that way for me. Um, as you look at the mountains, they kind of look like a wall. And sometimes it's hard to tell, is there a distinction there? Are they different layers? So if you've ever driven on the Trans-Canada, coming out of uh, Shushwap and coming out of Sycamus, you start to drive into the mountains. You're driving towards Revelstoke. And as you go up there, you go past Craiglachi, which is where the last spike was pounded into the railroad. And as you're going up that, that is called the Eagle Pass. And when the surveyors for the railroad were trying to figure out a way through the Rockies, and in that specific part there, the Monashi Mountains, but as they're trying to figure out their way to get out of the Shushwap Valley and connect in to where they wanted to get, where they knew they were trying to go through the, the Bath Valley there, they couldn't find a pass. And Walter Moberly in 1865 was out one day and he was doing some hunting and he fired his rifle and this flock of eagles lifted up, well, a couple of them, and uh, they flew through the mountains. And he realized that there must be a pass there because eagles tended to stay close to the, to the valley floor and weave. And it was the first time that he noticed that the mountains were not a solid wall, that there was this pass that we call Eagle Pass today, and for that reason. And I think that's a lot what the uh, Old Testament is talking about when it talks about Jesus. You kind of got to take a really good look. Is it talking about when Jesus comes the first time or when he comes the second time? And it's why the people in Jesus' time had so much trouble, because they thought all of those prophecies were about them. And it was only later that they began to realize, no, some of those are still to come. There's two different ranges of mountains here, and there's a pass in between. And so as we look at this passage this morning, it's primarily about the second coming. But it also talks about his first coming when he came as a baby. And it says that God is going to come in, and he will lift the fallen. He will mend the broken. He will replace what is destroyed, and he will revive the glories of the past. And so on the theory that we all need a little bit of extra hope this Advent especially, let's reflect on what God's saying there. And let's take that passage apart a little bit. And the first thing he says in that passage is that he's going to raise up a new king. In that day, he said, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And the king, who was also called the anointed one, the Messiah, this passage was fulfilled by Jesus in his first coming as a baby, but it will be fulfilled completely in the time to come. So how do I get Jesus out of that? Well, 
it talks about the booth of David. Now, when David was alive, God made a promise to him. He says, I will give you a house, which we now know is called the house of David. And what he meant by that was, I will give you a succession of kings who will all reign on the throne. And the interesting thing is when Jesus comes, he ends up being born in Bethlehem, even though his family lives in Nazareth. And the question is, how does he end up in Bethlehem? And Luke tells us, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. And here it is. Because he was from the house and line of David. And Amos doesn't talk about the house of David. He talks about the booth of David. And booth there is, um, it's a hut that you would build in a farmer's field. It's a hut that someone who was maybe harvesting grain here for a couple of days would just build a shelter, you know, just, just for that time. Uh, the description of it is not very flattering. It says God will lift up the fallen booth, repair its breaches, and rebuild it. I mean, it sounds like a true fixer-upper. It could be on any one of those TV shows, you know, as long as it's more than an hour long, because it's going to take some time to do this. And what Amos is saying is that God is going to send his Messiah to renew this line of kings that gets broken off. And it gets broken off at this uh, time when the Assyrians come in, in about 30 years future from uh, Amos, and destroy the country. And Jesus will come back as the king of kings. He will come back as the king of the Jews. He will come back as, uh, in a sense, the house of David. You remember when Jesus was born, the wise men came and said, where is he that is born king of the Jews? You remember when Jesus was being tried by Pilate just before he was crucified. Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And when Jesus was actually crucified, it says they put above him on the cross on a sign in three languages, king of the Jews. And in that sense, Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise that this house of David that has fallen to such disrepair that Amos calls it the booth of David will begin to be rebuilt, but it will not happen fully until Jesus comes again. When Jesus rides in at the end of time as King of kings and Lord of lords, that booth will be fully restored. The house of David will be back. But already, Amos is starting to promise us God is at work. And the second thing he says is God is going to renew creation. Behold, the days are coming, said the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. And when he talks there about the plowman overtaking the reaper and the uh, treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. What he's saying is the harvest is going to be so bountiful that they'll still be harvesting when it's time to sow the seed for the next season. That there will be just mountains flowing with wine and the hills. And, you know, in our euphemisms, we would probably say something like, you'll be up to your ears in the grape harvest. 
And so in the Old Testament, wine was just seen as one of the good things that God gave. It's part of God's shalom. In fact, one of the images of when everything is right in the world is when you get to sit under the shade of a tree with a glass of wine. Now, we as Baptists, you know, we might think maybe a great perfect cup of coffee on the patio. Uh, and I know some of you Baptists are much better at the wine thing than I am, but... But it's this illusion, allusion, sorry, not illusion, allusion. It alludes to the fact that God is, is going to break in and he's going to make things right. And not only make things right, he's going to make it right in such abundance. It's this hyperbole, this exaggeration for effect, this thing that uh, you want a glass of wine. We're going to give you like wine dripping off the mountains. The hills will be full of it. And it's primarily a promise for what will heaven be like. We don't know. But whatever the best thing is you can think of, it'll be better than that. And I think we, we get those glimpses here and now. We get those glimpses where, you know, you just have that perfect sunset and you just look at that and you go, wow. Or maybe you just have, you know, a meal with friends or family or something and everything is just perfect about it. Or maybe just when that, that moment when everything is right with the world. We have those, but they're fleeting. And the promise is that the fullness will come and eternity will be like those glimpses that we've had, except now forever. And then he says, not only will there be this wonderful creation. There will be joyful people. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. And when you read that, you kind of think, oh, okay, he's just saying the same thing again. He's already talked about wine. He's already talked about all this stuff. But where he makes the shift is that this is stuff, creation is renewed for our enjoyment. Creation is renewed for our pleasure. Earlier in chapter 5, Amos says, you know the challenge with the way you've been um, mistreating the poor, the way you've been walking with injustice? Well, God's judgment on you was that you don't get to enjoy the good things of the land. And in Amos 5.11, it says, Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him and you've built houses of hewn stone, you won't dwell in them. And you've planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. And now the promise is that God will restore their fortunes and he'll rebuild their ruined cities and they will get to enjoy it. And they will get to have those glimpses of the future that one day when God comes and rebuilds this world, when there is a new heaven and a new earth and a new creation, that we will get to enjoy that, that we will get to spend eternity with God. And David wrote this psalm, Psalm 51, a psalm of confession, but, but he has these verses in it towards the end. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. And then this wonderful line, restore to me the joy of my salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit.
Restore to me the joy of my salvation. That's the promise that Amos is giving us in that passage, that God will do that. And it will happen at the end times, but it is happening now. That God is already giving us those glimpses. God is already giving us in our spirits, if not in all our lives, this opportunity to have this, this time with him when everything is right. It comes out of confession. It comes out of right action. It comes out of righteousness and justice. But God promises to restore the joy of our salvation. Enjoying the good of creation. In some ways true, but fully true at the end. And then the last point out of that is this idea that Amos talks about being planted on the land and never being uprooted. I will plant them on their land, he says, and they shall never again be uprooted. They shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them. Now, less than 30 years after Amos finished this prophecy, the Assyrian army came in and destroyed Israel. It was a time of incredible battles. It was a time of great darkness. It was a time of great suffering. It was a time when the people were taken out of the land and they were forced to live in Assyria in a, in a totally different part of the country from where they were. It's where they lost all their wealth and basically became slaves. And some people who weren't taken out of the land were unable to handle the wild animals, were unable to keep up with, uh, you know, just cultivation of the land. And, and they struggled as much as the people that were taken. And part of this prophecy is that God will bring them back from Assyria. Amos was predicting they would go, but it wouldn't be permanent. They would come back. They would come back with Ezra and Nehemiah, if you remember those stories. They would come back and rebuild Jerusalem. They'd come back and rebuild the temple. But it was never going to be easy. There was always going to be challenge. The people that came into the land while they were away didn't want to give it up. There was all kinds of challenge that was there. They would live forever with someone else with their boots on their necks. They would always live with some other army conquering. But God promised he would send his Messiah. And when he came, Jesus, at his birth, he was not the end of the story yet. But everything is beginning to straighten out. And when Jesus comes fully, he will come in, and it will be this forever time. And when Amos says they'll never again be uprooted, he's using the same words that we find in that story where God, after the flood with Noah, when he's giving him the promise of the rainbow, says, I establish my covenant with you, Noah, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And Amos is saying, and never again will you go into exile. And never again will God leave you. When God comes at the end, that's forever time. And so these are the promises that Amos gave these people. He said, you know, 
There's going to be judgment because you have not lived up to what God wanted. But God is promising you that he's going to come back and he's going to rebuild. He's going to come back and he's going to make things right. What the book of Amos is about is God's judgment on the people of Israel for their lack of justice and their lack of righteousness. Their lack of justice and how they treated the poor. Their lack of justice and how they treated each other. How they treated the less fortunate. And we've drawn application from that for how we treat each other in racism or how we treat the poor or how we treat the international poor. And I think as we prepare ourselves for Christmas, as we go through this Advent season, God is trying to prepare our hearts that he can bring his shalom into the world. Now, that shalom is only going to fully come when Jesus comes back. But what God is saying is there should be some, some signs of it, some foretaste of it, some uh, just beginnings of foreshadowing of that shalom. And so I just think, you know, it's going to be a unique Christmas this year. COVID has just changed our, our game plan for everything. It's going to be smaller, it's going to be quieter, and it's probably going to be more local. But maybe God wants to use that in some significant way. Maybe he wants us to live a missional Christmas, a Christmas where it's not just about us and our family, but it is about the poor, it is about the less fortunate, it is about those internationally who need justice. And this year, what if instead of travel, what if instead of big meals with lots of family? What if instead of lavish presents? What if this year we spent the money on the poor? What if this year, as you heard in the announcements, that we're doing our Christmas hampers and we need food that we can give out to help families in our church and our community who just have needs? Maybe buying a present for a child that won't get much under the tree this year. And if you're interested in bringing food and buying a present, we'd love you to do that. You also heard this morning about what would it be like to donate money to the Food Grains Project. The Food Grains Project, as was explained, is just we help farmers in Brownfield grow a crop. They sell the crop. They give that money to the Food Grains Bank. The government matches that about four to one. And that money gets used for relief and development for food security around the world. And what if this year Christmas was that? Would that not be justice and righteousness? And this year we have a new one. It's called the Rwanda Initiative. And you can find it on our webpage. And it's helping orphans and vulnerable children and, and widows in Rwanda. We have a five-year partnership with a church there. And I got a letter this week from our missionaries that we worked with when we were over in Rwanda. Uh, they're the Bustons. They were back here in Canada for a while, and now they're back in Rwanda again. And they were talking about the difference that giving can make. Let me just tell you one story. They have this project there where they've reached out to uh, retired pastors and widows of pastors. So they have 48 retired pastors, and they have 38 widows of pastors. And they're struggling to get by at the best of times. And they're struggling in this COVID season. So what they did was they gave them a gift of $100. Well, the equivalent in 
Rwandese money. It's enough to buy two months of staples of foods, you know, rice and beans and a few things like that. And during the meetings they had with these retired pastors and these widows, they said, you're free to use this money in other ways if you feel that would be helpful. And he tells in there the story of Bertelida Mukantawari. <laughs> That's not even close to how her name is said. But Her husband was a pastor, and he died in 2005. She's a widow with three children. She's 46 years old, has five children, no home, no land, struggling to get by. She was at this meeting, and she was given this $100. She was told ahead of time that she was to come, and she would be given that. And she was told ahead of time that she could use the money how she saw fit. And here's what she said when she received the money. She said, thank you so much for the money. I am going to spend half of it on food so that my family can eat. But the other half, I'm going to spend developing a small business so that I will have continual income going forward, and I will be able to feed my own family in future days. And then she said, when God blesses the support, it'll be the base for continuing my small business. And then she said these words, I want to thank the generous people who were thinking of the vulnerable. Almighty God, bless them and comfort them in their plans forever. And those are the words Daryl Buston says at the end of that letter. Those are the words of someone who unexpectedly found hope in the midst of pandemic. What if that's what the whole book of Amos has been trying to lead us towards? What if God has been saying to us, let righteousness flow? and justice like an ever-rolling stream. What if God is saying to us this morning that he is blessing us that we can make a difference in our world? Our passage this morning in Amos has been mostly about the second coming. It's about that promise that God is going to make all things right. But it's also the promise that in the meantime, God has been at work in Jesus Christ coming. And God is at work in our lives as well. It's the promise that God will come in and make a difference. It's the promise that he will lift up the fallen, that he will mend the broken, that he will replace what is destroyed, that he will revive some of the glories of the past. And as we start Advent this year, that's my prayer. My prayer is that we'll begin to experience this in our lives and the lives of our families, and the life of our church, that God will come in and will make a difference. That God will come in and lift where we have fallen. That he will mend where we are broken. That he will replace what has been destroyed. And that he will revive some of the glory of the past when he was at work in his people in amazing ways throughout church history and Bible history. And I guess my prayer as we close is simply that prayer from David from Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Restore to me 
the joy of my salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. This morning as we start Advent, Amos has been calling us to look ahead, that God is coming back. He's also been reminding us that God is at work in the meantime, at work in our lives of giving us these first fruits, these hints of all that the future will be when we spend eternity with him. And I think he's calling us to say, and I've equipped you to make a difference in the lives of people all around so that they can have those hints, so they can have those just little foretastes of all that God is going to do. And this morning, I just invite us to rethink Christmas a little bit as we prepare through Advent. What is God wanting to do? How is God wanting to use us? How can we bring those signs of God's love, of God's peace and God's shalom? How can we bring that into the lives of those around us? How can we live on mission this Christmas? Not just for ourselves, but for the world God put us within. And so this morning, Father, we thank you. We thank you for Advent, which allows us to prepare. We thank you for this passage from Amos, which reminds us that Christmas isn't all about us. It isn't all about just toys and food and lights and family. It's a reminder that you broke into this world to make a difference. You broke in to save us from our sin, but you also broke in to begin to bring your justice and your righteousness and your shalom, your goodness into this world. Father, may we be your people on mission with you this Christmas, that we would also be those who seek to live out your righteousness, who seek to bring your justice, and who seek to help show those signs of your goodness and shalom through generosity and through our lives. And we thank you for all of this in Jesus' name.